to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Evening. And uh, joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, his genius undeniable, his evil unspeakable. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Yes. And I'm going to try and guess the tagline. I'm going to say something in the Mad Professor genre. I'm going to say the abominable Dr. Phoebes. No, no, no. More recent than that. More kind of uh, uh, serious than that. It's Hannibal, oh. the uh, the sequel that re- literally no one wanted to uh, Silence of the Lambs. I thought you um, were going to say Social Network for some reason. No, no, no that could apply there for sure. I, uh, this week, uh, we're going to get some news in a minute, but I've got a little kind of personal story to tell, uh, listeners. Uh, I was uh, sick as a dog this week. I don't want to... Uh, undersell this story but there's a there's a kind of a, a kind of 48 hour bug going around uh sheffield uh currently which uh again i don't want to uh kind of overstate it but it's pretty much reached pandemic level now um it's got the city on lockdown probably yorkshire as well and it's coming for you uh but anyway i had this uh last week and it was pretty unpleasant and i was really ill and i couldn't sleep and it was like two in the morning and I needed to do something because I couldn't kind of like lay in bed and was really uncomfortable. And I thought, I'll go downstairs, I'll, I'll kind of put the TV on and uh, maybe that'll take my mind off it and I'll kind of fall asleep and I'll just kind of pass out because I'm so tired, etc., etc. And then when I wake up, I'll probably feel better. Well, I kind of got up and the best that British television could offer or that I could put the channel onto with my kind of weak and feeble fingers was the TV channel uh, TCM, and Ed, remind us what TCM stands for. Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, um, the Turner Classic Movies in the UK, as myself and Ed have had this conversation this week, they don't show classic movies. They just show <laughs> movies. Uh, currently, uh, I always have TCM on in the background whilst we record this podcast, they are showing the distinctly non-classic film Ghost Ship, starring uh, Gabriel <laughs> Byrne, and uh, Juliana Margulies, uh, and I've literally just watched an entire cruise ship sliced in half in the opening scene of a film, which is really grisly and violent, and uh, I'm now watching a uh, slightly-by-the-numbers paranormal thriller unfold. Anyway, back to Tuesday evening, and I'm going to set the scene, listeners. I'm, I've put on turn classic movies, and I am tripping my nuts out on fever, right? I cannot really concentrate and the film that I did not need to see was Showdown in Little Tokyo, starring Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren. For those of you who haven't seen Showdown in Little Tokyo, it's actually really good in a really awful way because the film is full of weird moments that laugh at how stupid the film is, but then the film then carries on to indulge in how stupid the film is without, as if the director's like, there is something going on here, but I'm not really sure what it is. Anyone who's seen the film Pain and Gain, directed by Michael Bay, mm-hmm. will kind of know the feeling. For instance, there's a bit where they fight through like a, 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 like a, like a tower block of villains and they're just beating people relentlessly. And then they get in a lift or go up some stairs and they're on a next level and then they beat more guys up and then they go up another level and they beat more guys up. And then Brandon Lee turns to Dolph Lundgren and says, hey, this is just like a video game. We're going through levels and beating guys up. And Dolph Lundgren goes, 
Yeah. And then they carry on for another 20 minutes. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's crazy. And I did not need, in the height of kind of like this life-threatening fever, to wake up to see Brandon Lee saying to Dolph Lundgren, at your rhino, uh, you've got the biggest dick of any white man I've ever seen. Which is, <laughs> I think, happened. And this is where like uh, reality starts to diverge. Because I do remember going downstairs... And my wife in the morning certainly found me downstairs, but she found, and I found when I woke up and she woke me, that I had the fishing channel on. <laughs> so what I really want to know is, like, A, how is there a fishing channel? <laughs> I mean, that's, that shit's bananas. And B, like, can anyone confirm that that happened? Did turn a classic movie show, Showdown in Little Tokyo on Tuesday night? And did I watch it? I'm pretty sure I've seen that movie before. I have seen that movie before, maybe a couple of times. But, like, I felt like that was all part of the sickness. And I want to know if anyone else out there, especially people in the Yorkshire area or probably now uh, East Midlands area too, has had this bug and and uh, uh, experienced similar symptoms of seeing Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee kind of slugging it out with the Yakuza. It does sound to me like you experienced your own version of the bit in Requiem for a Dream where Ellen Burstyn starts to imagine that the people from the TV are in her own apartment. That is kind of what I was thinking. That's what it felt like. A little gentler. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. Uh, The news this week uh, has been taken up a lot by uh, nerds getting angry about uh, a (laughs) Civil War trailer. Uh, Who'd have thought nerds getting angry about something on the internet? Um, so just to fill you in, it's the Civil War, it's the Avengers 2.5, as we've been call, uh, kind of calling it now. And it's notable, really, for being exactly the same trailer as was released earlier this year, um, but with added Spider-Man. And, I mean, everyone likes Spider-Man, right? Apart from when his eyes move, it seems. Yeah, that's certainly seems to have been much discussion. I personally don't care, but also I don't mind that his eyes move, because, like, my first experience with the kind of like the spider-man character was watching repeats of the 60s cartoon series where his Mm. eyes were moving all the time because obviously he's not a very expressive character spider-man his mask is kind of very uh static and it's hard really to kind of convey emotion so giving him movable eyes doesn't seem that bad to me although as has been pointed out on twitter the spacing of them does make it seem as if his eyes are probably almost off the side of his head <laughs> yeah and to kind of match it with where the eyes are in the mask so that might be a problem um, he should be called maybe... more chameleon man if his eyes are on the side of his head <laughs> yeah so maybe that'll be resolved in fiction that uh in addition to kind of the spider bite giving him all of these powers it also causes his eyes to move like four inches to the side hmm. um I mean, really he should have eight eyes if he's a spider man well, that's if he if he transforms into man spider, but I think I don't think they'll go that far into the canon. Yeah, and I mean to be generous to the nerds, it kind of doesn't make sense. But then it's in a film where there's a fucking old dude from the war throwing a shield and a fucking god with a hammer flying about and a man the size of an ant. Like, get a fucking grip. Yeah, and I think there's enough kind of fan service in the rest of the trailer and probably in the film itself that that stuff will be kind of fairly minor or you'd hope that people wouldn't get that kind of annoyed by what is like a very minor bit of of um a minor character choice and also one that is at least kind of distinctive and interesting as opposed to just presenting us with like the third version of a of a character with static mask that we've seen before and 
uh, you know, fairly recently rejected en masse. Mm. And we're going to see again next year. We're going to get to finally find out where Spider-Man comes from and <laughs> uh, and see um, kind of Uncle Ben, see what happens to him. It's, see, it's, it's a thankless role, isn't it, Uncle Ben? Yeah, there's not really much that you can do. Although, if they kind of live up to the promise, the promise with the third version of Spider-Man, they've said, is that it's not going to be an origin story. It's going to be him as a teenager, but they're not going to cover all of that again. So maybe Uncle Ben won't be a character, but unless they have him in flashback. But even in flashback, it's, you know, you just kind of see him bleeding on the street and just saying, with great power comes great responsibility. I am dead. Mm. You know, there's not really going to be much more they can really do with the character at this point. Unless they make a biopic about the man who invents the the (laughs) microwavable rice line. I don't see where... They can possibly go with it. Bit of odd news this week, uh, and I had to click on it uh, to make sure it wasn't an Onion headline, but it appears that a very serious filmmaker, Christopher Nolan, uh, is in the the midst of making another very serious film, uh, this time about Dunkirk, and I'm presuming the evacuation from. But he appears to, amongst his cast of genuine actors, he seems to be kind of trying to cast uh, Harry Styles, which is unusual because he is A, not an actor, and B, uh, in a pop band, I believe, are called One Direction. Yeah, well, you've got to get the young kids in to watch a film about a lot of people sailing away in a boat at the last minute. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, that would be the obvious thinking, that it's a, uh, a kind of a shameless bit of stunt casting, but someone like Christopher Nolan is above that kind of thing, surely. You would think, but I think he may also just have so many roles to fill these just kind of exhausting all of the british actor roles and he's just having to go through all those pop stars now mm. but um yeah it's very it's very weird it on, on one level i kind of like it just because you know there's obviously that long-standing tradition of casting pop stars in major motion pictures just because you know they have they bring a certain cachet mm-hmm. but you know i i don't know if uh you know so it's like a ricky nelson in Rio Bravo sort of thing, but um, I I don't know enough about Harry Styles to really know whether or not he'd be particularly good in it. But also, I think you know people don't know the the size of the role. He could be in kind of a very small supporting role, and it might not amount to very much. But yeah, it is like you say, it is a very weird thing to read that he would even be considered, let alone that he would actually be cast. Mm, mm. And uh, I will say this: that a uh, a friend of a friend. Is uh, mum is uh, One Direction's uh, touring chef, and she's obviously touring around the world with them at all times and traveling around with the TV appearances all over the place and generally trotting the globe doing her thing. And as a result, has to miss a lot of things. So she might send a video back to her daughter to say something like, "Oh, sorry, I'm missing your your kind of uh, 18th birthday or whatever. I'm afraid I can't be here. I've got a." a really kind of like strict boss and he won't let me out. And then all of a sudden Harry Styles will come on playing this kind of like strict boss. And like, it's a joke. He's basically sending a video to this, you know, young girl who's excited about her mum being on tour with One Direction. I will say from having seen those that Harry Styles might be a little out of his depth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's hoping that, that he didn't submit those as his uh, audition tape. Hmm. Yeah, because he would not have got the part, even as Harry Styles. 
in the TV movie of One Direction. Hang on, this just brought brought a memory back uh, to me. Did All Saints make a gangster film? That's a very complicated question. I have no idea if they did or not. I know that Ash made a zombie film, or they made some sort of supernatural film with the members of Coldplay and with Simon Pegg, but I don't know if that ever saw the light of day. I don't know about All Saints personally making a gangster film. Well, I'm just going to look it up. Um, I know one of them wore a fedora on like an album cover, maybe. That is not of any use to me, Ed, that bit <laughs> of uh, info. I need I need hard evidence. Apparently it's a film called Honest. Okay, cool. The hugely hyped gangster flick with which the girl band All Saints hope to launch their film careers has bombed at the box office. Holy fuck. Directed by Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics. <laughs> what the fuck is this thing? Uh, I feel like the next episode of this podcast should be us watching that film. Uh, to be honest, it's probably on Turner Classic Movies next. <laughs> Very possibly. This is... How does how did I not know about this thing? This is almost exactly the sort of thing I want to see, just the most misguided thing idea anyone has ever had. Mm. And I think from memory, I I've got this is a this is a memory of like what Juvenile Me would have remembered about it, but one of the Appleton sisters uh goes topless and it was a big deal. And uh like I think a lot of the lads mags mags picked up. I mean, this makes this is starting to make sense in my mind now, lads mags. British gangster films. It was the late nineties, early two thousands. I'm pretty sure, and yeah, it, it that film went down like a wet shit. I'm, I'm it was of... written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Fuck me sideways. <laughs> this... this is this is baffling. Mm. It exists, man. It's got to be on Netflix somewhere, like in the depths of Netflix. We'll have to find it. Anyway, uh, until we actually have seen that film, I don't feel like we can move on in any real sense, Ed. Um, <laughs> with our but, lives, with the show. Yeah, but we're going to have to move on, and move on we will. Um, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, we are going to talk about the work of the Coen brothers to coincide with the release of their latest film, Hail Caesar. <laughs> coincide. I like that. Um, that was not intentional. <laughs> I wish it was. Oh, oh come on, Ed. Well, you know what you were doing. Uh, yes, Hail Caesar is their new film. We both uh, saw it uh, recently. I saw it today. You saw it a couple of weeks ago because you live in America where everything's out much sooner and it's all better. What did we think to Hail Caesar? Uh, well, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it when I watched it. I'd heard mixed things going in, so I wasn't sure what to expect, but I found it to be kind of hugely enjoyable if kind of a bit scattershot. Uh, and as the weeks have gone on, I find myself thinking about it a lot more Certainly, in terms of some of the scenes that you know are hugely enjoyable and fun to watch, but also uh, kind of deeper themes, I guess, and the underlying ideas in it, which uh, I think touch on a lot of of uh, concepts that the Coens have looked at a lot over the course of their three decade long career in the movie industry. Mm. I super enjoyed it as well. I think I think for me, it fell into uh, the category that is they've got they've got. They're films that are kind of clearly masterpieces and, and they're really good. Uh, and then they've got some kind of slightly more disposable films yet that are still super enjoyable. Uh, and I would put uh, things like uh, Burn After Reading and Oh Brother Where Art Thou and um, Big Lebowski to an extent. I'd put those films in that bracket and it definitely kind of slipped into there for me. I felt like 
they were having a lot of fun with it. It did feel a little bit like it was slightly heavy on the cameos. Mm. Like I did think that you could remove Scarlett Johansson and Jonah Hill's characters and it wouldn't make a difference to the film. Yeah, probably. I think in a lot of cases, certainly the Scarlett Johansson thing is, is really there just to kind of act as a way of illustrating what fixes like Eddie Mannix, the character that Josh Brolin plays, who is very, very loosely based on a real life fixer who worked for MGM called Eddie Mannix. But um, it's kind of very different from him in that the real Eddie Mannix was awful and a terrible human being. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, having her in there as an Esther Williams type who has become pregnant and the way in which Mannix has to kind of find a resolution for that of getting her married off essentially to make sure that she doesn't spoil her image as kind of a family-friendly star. So it, it kind of, you can see why they're including it because they clearly want to illustrate what this kind of a character d- actually did in the real life, you know, kind of 50s Hollywood. But in terms of what's actually happening in the story, it's very inessential as as evidenced by the fact that it gets resolved off screen very kind of quickly. Mm. And uh, yeah, Tilda Swinton's two characters as well felt a little superfluous. Mm. Perhaps was a character that didn't need to be played by Tilda Swinton. Might be fair criticism. Yeah, possibly. It didn't really push her that much. And the main point for her being in the film is to kind of set up that joke where Alden Ehrenreich uh, mixes her up with her sister and gives a story to her that he's meant to give to the other one, which is not the kind of demanding role that you would kind of bring in a a, a Tilda Swinton for. Mm, mm. I suppose the Coen brothers can do that, but then when they do do that, it does feel a little bit like, oh, let's get our famous mates in for a day, pay them scale and, you know, get the name on the poster. But let's not take away, it was a hugely enjoyable film. One thing I uh, really enjoyed about the film uh, was the aforementioned Alden Ehrenreich, uh, the young actor who uh, I first saw in Tetro, and to be honest, until I watched uh, Hail Caesar's Day, it was the only thing I'd seen him in. I loved him in Tetro and I thought he was brilliant in this and I would just like to go on record as saying that he is one of the names being bandied around uh, to play young Han Solo in the upcoming Lord and Miller Han Solo origin movie after on today's evidence I think that would be bloody good casting. Yeah he's immensely charming and immensely funny and his inability to say would that it were so simple is uh, probably one of the most joyous scenes I've seen in a while that whole sequence of Ray Fiennes trying to uh, coach him through a single line of dialogue for which he is not particularly suited uh, is just, I think, I, I honestly think one of the funniest things the Coens have ever come up with. Mm. And I have to say that it was very busy uh, screening that I was in this evening and just him being unable to open the door <laughs> went down so well uh, with the room I saw it in. Uh, even the bit where you don't even see him, the door just drifts ajar because he has been unable to close it because <laughs> um, he is that out of place. And then as soon as the the uh, director calls cut, just the complete change in his, like, kind of, he's just super relaxed and just keen to do something and doesn't really understand the situation he's in <laughs> or the fact that he can't really act very well. Um, mm. And, yeah, he's as... as as baffled as everyone else is as to why he's been cast, but he's just trying his best. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, really funny scene. Um, but he is, yeah, he's, he's certainly got something that kid. I'm not saying what else has he been in other than those two films. 
those are the only two that leap to mind. I know that he's been, he's one of those people who's been just in a bunch of stuff. And it's just, this This definitely feels like a breakthrough role for him, even though the film itself hasn't been hugely successful or necessarily that well received. Oh, Stoker, he was in Stoker. Oh, was it? Who was in Stoker? I think he was one of um, Mia Vajikovska's classmates. I don't think she, he was a big role. He was also in Blue Jasmine. Wow, okay. Uh, I've seen more than... Oh, he was in Twixt. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Won't hold that against him. Yeah, he probably needed the money. Yeah, no, I think I think you'd make a good Han Solo. Yeah, I would as well. I think he certainly has a kind of old school movie star swagger, which is the same sort of thing that Harrison Ford brought to the role in the early Star Wars films. And yeah. it helps to be someone who embodies like a certain degree of masculine confidence and who can also be kind of really funny and uh, which is, you know, all integral parts of that character. Uh, I like about the Coen brothers... One of the things is they often take an actor who uh, has done a serious role for them and then they give him the kind of exact opposite and give him a comedic role. And this time around, it's Josh Brolin, who mm. had a very grave and serious role in No Country for Old Men, but gets to flex his comedy chops in in this. Yeah, and they he kind of has the same similar qualities to his character in No Country for Old Men in that he's a kind of a guy of principle and a guy of... Uh, who's kind of very gruff and taciturn but yeah like like this instead of being placed in a kind of existential existentially dreadful situation in which he's being chased by the embodiment of pure evil he's just kind of a guy trying to keep the wheels from completely falling off of a major major movie studio and the the essential absurdity kind of puts those qualities into a different light Mm, mm. it was fun to see kind of George Clooney doing kind of clearly enjoying himself in a comedy role. Um, mm. And I kind of uh, get the idea that he kind of enjoys taking the piss out of his, his own persona. Yeah. This definitely felt like one of the kind of clearest examples of that, because obviously he's played buffoons for them, for the Coen brothers before. And, and they often talk about how this along with no country and probably burn after reading a perform their idiot trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think they they include a couple of different films in there, the intolerable cruelty kind of doesn't quite fit into it. But yeah, he he is someone who has repeatedly played just idiots for them, and this this is the, the first one where it really feels as if it's not just that they want to take a guy who is usually associated with kind of serious mainstream fare and have him be incredibly goofy. It's one where he is playing kind of a vain, glorious. Uh, matinee idol the sort of basically the sort of person he would have been if he had been born 50 years earlier Mm. Um, that is exactly the sort of actor that he would have ended up becoming someone who would headline a ben-hur style biblical um sword and sandals epic Mm. so it's this feels like the most direct example of them not only kind of playing with his persona but actually kind of directly referencing it through the kind of role they gave him yeah yeah absolutely I did love uh, the Communist Party uh, because I had like loads of fun picking through who was playing <laughs> all of the guys in the background. There was a moment mm. where um, the actor turned out to be David Crumholtz, but uh, I actually thought uh, that Alfred Molina had eaten Oscar Isaac. Yeah, I did. For a lot of that scene, I felt myself thinking, did they cast Oscar Isaac in there and just not tell anyone? Because <laughs> I would have felt like, you know, Tumblr alone would have exploded if there was an Oscar Isaac sighting. 
regardless of the film in question. And uh, yeah, so once I it got to the end credits and it was like David Cromwell's, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Now I see. Now I understand why everyone says that they could play brothers because with a beard, he does look exactly like, like you say, like a, a slightly heavier set Lewin Davis. Mm, and uh, Fisher Stevens was there, who uh, to reference uh, Master of None is not actually Indian. <laughs> but not and also not actually communist so he's still engaging in cultural appropriation mm, yeah that's classic acting um fred and... malamed as well in a role that i thought was going to be bigger when he showed up but it just kind of just shows people in and feeds a cat really yeah and uh makes cucumber sandwiches mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't get to uh display his impressive uh set of lungs um, which and the guy from the... Girls as well, the Ray, whatever isn't the guy who plays Ray from Girls, is the cameraman who doesn't even have a single line. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I also enjoyed uh, Michael Gambon's narration, which mm-hmm. although somehow it made me feel like I was watching a Wes Anderson film. It, I think it it helped as well that the you know you had uh, let's say Ray Fiennes and Tilda Swinton in there, so the two two of the key players of uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. So uh, and Clooney, who's obviously done at least one Wes Anderson film, so there was a fair deal of overlap between their their casts in this, which I thought was interesting, especially because it has the same kind of bitty kind of nature, where it's, it does feel like a very episodic, and there's a kind of a huge array of characters, but really the story is only about one of them, which uh, Grand Budapest Hotel has a, a similar sense. Mm, mm. I also liked, well, I'm obviously going to like this, but Channing Tatum's uh, dance mm-hmm. number, um, which and was directed by Christoph Lambert. I was like, I, direct, I recognize that guy who's that director. I was like, is that Ted Danson in heavy makeup? No, why is he putting on an accent? And then at the end, it was like Christoph Lambert. I was like, fuck off. No, that's not him. And it is, it's him. Yeah, and Clancy Brown as well, who, like, for, for a large part of the film, I was just going to think, that guy's really, really familiar, and I couldn't quite place it because of all of the kind of facial hair they have him under. Mm. But then, yeah, after after he'd spoken a few lines, like, oh yeah, that is uh, unmistakably Clancy Brown. Yeah, yeah, that that whole bit reminded me of the uh, the story about John Wayne, which I'm not sure is true, but I think it's uh, one of those ones that's kind of passed into Hollywood legend. That uh, what's the big biblical film he's in? Is it the greatest story ever told? I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit at the end, and he pretty much does exactly the same thing as. George Clooney does. He turns up right at the end as a as a kind of a centurion looking up at Jesus on the cross and and uh, has a, like a little moment. And I think his line he has to say is, "Could this be the Son of God or something like that?" And mm-hmm. uh, the director's like, "Oh, that's cool, man. Could you just uh, uh, I think you give it, but I think this is the Son of God. So can you try it with a little bit more awe?" And then he <laughs> says, "Oh, could this be the Son of God?" <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it just reminded me of that story. It's just like. Yeah, that's the exact kind of thing that did used to happen. So yes, Hail Caesar is in theatres now. Cinemas, if you're on this side of the pond, well worth checking out because the Coen brothers make good films, which leads me on to my first question about the Coen brothers, Ed, is should they and could they be considered, rightly, the most consistently excellent filmmakers working today? They've definitely got to be up there. I feel like they have, obviously, they had a, a kind of... A few misfires in the early 2000s you know that you had um oh brother we're out there which isn't a bad film but is kind of i think a lesser film that has to a large extent been overshadowed by its soundtrack mm-hmm. um which is you know kind of an amazing soundtrack which has probably did a lot to kind of help revive an entire kind of subgenre of music and certainly 
it's probably did a lot for the ukulele and the banjo mm-hmm. uh, without which much of modern pop music would not exist um or at least annoying pop music that gets played in starbucks is yeah and uh, and then obviously after that they had intolerable cruelty and the lady killers but even kind of during their, their that kind of very spotty period um and having said that i i, I think the lady killers is not a great film but it's like okay mm-hmm. it's just obviously it's not as good as the original so it can't really uh measure up but even in that they also produced the man who uh, wasn't there which uh, for me is like one of their top five i think that's an amazing movie so even when they weren't firing on all cylinders they still were able to kind of crank out a masterpiece yeah it's the reason that I would say that they are up there with being the most consistent, perhaps above anyone else, is, I mean, the thing is, you look at someone like Wes Anderson or someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, who who all the films they've made uh, could be considered great, perhaps. Or uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. Well, you know, that goes without saying. That's why I didn't say it. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the difference is, is the Coen brothers have made a lot more films. They've made, by my calculation, 17 films. Oh, Hail Caesar is their 17th. And generally going from like maybe a critical consensus standpoint, uh, Intolerable Cruelty is their only bad film, I guess. Um, and even the films that, like you say, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou's, and even stuff like The Hudsucker Proxy, which are regarded as their failures, critically and commercially, they're actually not bad movies. Yeah, they have. They always have something to them. I think part of that is that they are kind of very interesting guys. They they obviously have a tremendous interest in old, in some cases, dead genres of filmmaking. And I feel like part of what uh, makes them so kind of captivating from a kind of a perspective as you know, a fan of their work is the fact that they have take they take these genres, you know, screwball comedies, noir, and they, you know, they bring something new to it. They bring a modern sensibility and a kind of a um kind of a cine literate quality to them that makes them fun to unpack. So even their films that maybe aren't great will probably have some element to it which from a film historian point of view would be really interesting to consider. Mm. And the thing that is constantly amazing to me, which is the thing that I always find amazing about uh, people like Howard Hawks, which is something we talk about quite a lot on here, is that uh, they generally made quite a lot of masterpieces across completely different genres. And Mm. with the Coen brothers, what makes it even more amazing is that they kind of meld the genres together. They, They kind of never really play it too close if they make a film noir it's not really a straight film noir there's like weird sci-fi elements or comedy bits to it like or if they make a a kind of thriller it's kind of not just a straight kind of pursuit thriller like no country for old men it's like you say it's got something a bit more kind of existential and uh, kind of grander going on that's quite the achievement isn't it yeah and i think it's also it's interesting that they have such a firm grasp of these different genres i think it's kind of similar to a Quentin Tarantino where they are filmmakers who have clearly, you know, kind of lived and breathed all of this, this cinema that has helped shape them over the years. And they, they understand completely the rules of how these films are meant to be made, which is why they kind of are so good at breaking them. Um, but you also, it's also interesting that every so often they'll make a film which doesn't really conform to any particular genre like Barton Fink, which I think is, 
um it's, it's it's in my top two it's that or raising arizona is my favorites where it's a film where you think okay it's a period piece and it's kind of a satire of uh of hollywood but it's also kind of just a, a film a very personal film about suffering from writer's block which involves an entire corridor flaming on fire and john uh, goodman running around with a shotgun you know it's a film that you can kind of you could try and place in a particular genre, but really it's it's very distinct and its own sort of thing. So, or something like Inside Lewin Davis, where you could say, I guess it's kind of a musical because there's lots of songs, but really it's about a study of, of, you know, whatever you want to call it, about grief or depression or whatever. Um, and so they they can do kind of genre pastiches and genre kind of commentary, but they are also creative and uh, uh artists in their own right they are able to do things that are interesting and unique mm. and they're not afraid to essentially smack the audience around the face if it appears to be going one way too quickly like in a lot of their early films were marked out by uh sudden acts of brutal violence uh, mm. which kind of um carried on stuff like burn after reading is a great example i can think of where going to spoil a little bit of burn after reading if you anyone hasn't seen it so skip forward a little bit if you haven't but yeah brad pitt one of the uh, marketable poster stars is shot in the face uh <laughs> suddenly uh, but then also similarly uh the film's quite goofy it's quite knockabout and all of a sudden uh leading man george clooney reveals he's been building a dildo chair <laughs> in his basement <laughs> and the that all of a sudden this person who's supposed to be i don't know someone we're kind of like like i guess now suddenly a bit of a fucking weird pervert yeah uh, and yeah it's they're not afraid to kind of toss a curveball in there yeah they, they are people who like i said they they understand what audiences expect from these films because obviously they have been the audiences for the kind of films that they're they're making and so that's where they sometimes they'll be fairly straightforward with it because like i think something like miller's crossing which is an amazing movie it's pretty much just straightforward gangster film and there aren't a huge amount of kind of surprises embedded in it, but they, they, if, if necessary, they will kind of take a film and then think, okay, how can we make, how can we kind of jerk the audience into awareness a bit more? And, and like, like you say, outbursts of horrifying violence or sudden kind of strange character quirks are a good way of doing that. Mm, mm. It's interesting. Like when you just said that, you know, Barton Fink, uh, sorry, the man who wasn't there, Barton Fink and Raising Arizona would be right up there for your favourite films, that their their catalogue is so diverse and mm. their their filmography is so uh, good that like I wouldn't even put either of any of those three in my top ten. <laughs> and that's like, and, you know, any other filmmakers, you'd be like, that's fucking madness, but they've made that many good films. There really isn't. You can kind of shuffle those those kind of top 15 or whatever into any order and it'd be acceptable. Yeah. I mean, that that's something that becomes really apparent every time they put a new film out and film Twitter goes nuts and they all start ranking all of their films and, you know, a thousand people will start posting all of their, their top tens and it, it they are, they, you will get like a thousand different ones. People will have all of these different combinations and some people will love the big Lebowski and put it up there because, you know, it's, it's probably their most straight and out entertaining film. Some people will put no country up there because it's obviously the, the most 
acclaimed one they did or or like me or put barton fink or raising arizona really high their their work is so diverse uh in in tone and style and genre that it they really do have at least one film for everyone i think you may hate like most of their films so there's probably one that someone listening to this podcast likes even if they don't like all of it mm, yeah yeah and uh i'll always it, they've got that many good films that i will always forget they've done one mm. that'll be like you know thinking about them and going oh well you know they did this this and this and they're great and then oh fuck they did a serious man as well that's holy shit i can't believe that they you know that I, their, their filmography is that good that i could list five or six great films and forget that one yeah and i think also something that's become kind of interesting in the last couple of years is they've started writing screenplays for other directors more um this was something they kind of tried to do in the early 2000s because uh, if i remember correctly both intolerable cruelty and lady killers but oh but you know maybe not lady killers but definitely intolerable cruelty started out as projects for other filmmakers and then whoever it was that was meant to direct them fell through so the coens ended up directing them themselves Mm. um but for you know most for the most part they have written their own films but the last couple of years you've had gambit and broken and bridge of spies were all ones they they contributed to the screenplays for and it's really interesting that they've done that because now we have kind of demonstrable evidence of what their directorial style means for their work because when you see other people working from their scripts and in some cases you still end up with a good film but you know the, the, the dialogue doesn't crackle as much if it doesn't have their specific editing choices there Mm. Uh, and I find it very interesting that they have reached the, that part of their career as suddenly occurred. Mm. I found it something interesting today that, like, uh, obviously, one of the Cohen brothers is married to Francis McDormand, mm-hmm. who appears in a lot of their films. That's cool, you know. Keep it nepotistic, like. But also, <laughs> the other Cohen brother is married to an editor, and the the Cohen brothers choose to edit their own films under a pseudonym. So I was like, that must be awkward at dinner. Come on now. Just give me a job, it's fine. <laughs> no, we're going to give it to Roderick James. Yeah, yeah. Our yeah. good friend who no one has ever met. He's still one of the, uh, there's like a weird list of people, isn't there? Like made up people who have been nominated for Oscars. Like, yes. uh, the, was it the Nicolas Cage's twin in, uh, well, sorry, the the person, uh, is it uh, Kaufman? Donald Kaufman. Donald Kaufman, that's right, yeah. And uh, uh, Robert Town's dog is credited with writing Greystoke because he was so annoyed with how the script was kind of taken away from that he insisted it be credited to his dog. And then the, it was nominated for an Oscar, so technically his dog is nominated for an Oscar. Oh, wow. I'm, I mean, I'm wowing more that uh, that film was nominated for any kind of Oscar. <laughs> um, I have been fascinated and kind of keeping up with the Coen Brothers films that they have never made. Mm. Um, and uh, we've talked before about um, the Michael Chabon novel, the uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union, which to this day still would remain an amazing Coen Brothers film, uh, mm. even though it might just feel a bit too convenient <laughs> that um, they would be the perfect people for it. They, um, It's just you imagine the Coen Brothers version of it in your head when you're reading it, which is probably what turned them off it, I guess, because they did write a version of the script and then kind of let it lapse back to the author. But... I think the one that everyone, uh, the famous one that everyone wanted to see was the the version of the To, to the White Sea. Is that what it's called? 
Uh, yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, um, and that's the film, for those who don't know, which would have starred Brad Pitt, which would have been 90 minutes of Brad Pitt not talking. Is he a US airman lost on a Japanese island during World War Two, who yeah, basically goes on an existential journey from one side of an island to another, uh, and everyone he meets, he kills. Yeah, that's basically the, the size of it. It's the sort of film which sounds amazing on paper and probably would be really good. It'd certainly be interesting to see what the Coen brothers would do with no dialogue, considering that that is kind of one of the things they're most known for, really, is the great lines in their scripts, but which you would find it very hard to imagine any studio kind of banking on. Um, maybe the most, the closest they would have got to making it would have been if they had made it their project after True Grit earned like $170 million in the US. But uh, they didn't. They made Inside Lewin Davis, which I'm thankful for because I, I love that film and I think it's amazing. But yeah, it kind of feels like they would need to have a monster hit on their hands to justify it being made. And, and even if they did get it made now, probably wouldn't star Brad Pitt because he maybe have aged out of that role. But it's, it certainly is a kind of a tantalizing prospect. Mm. But the what kind of kind of uh, I find interesting about uh, the to the White Sea thing is that the Coen Brothers could get that film made if they wanted to, because mm. the Coen Brothers films invariably always do make a little bit of money. It's like I mean, they'll always make money in Europe, um, and they'll always you probably make their money back in America. Um, they are you know kind of a rare breed of directors who can pretty much do what they want yeah i think they've been very obviously they're they're hugely talented so that helps mm -hmm. but i think they've also been very fortunate in that they kind of were these these weird outsiders who made films that critics liked although not all critics i know that roger ebert took a long time to warm to them i don't think he gave them a positive review until fargo um they they kind of came from the outside of Hollywood and they, they brought a definite kind of unique Midwestern perspective to the this uh, these kind of traditional Hollywood genres. And then with Fargo, they had a huge critical and commercial success, which won them uh, an Oscar and everything. So they were able to kind of become weirdly establishment figures at the point at which studios were still kind of looking for auteurs to back before, you know, uh, things got a lot more difficult and the, the idea of the mid-budget movie kind of died. So it's interesting to think that they have now, they were able to get into a position where people would pretty much always be willing to back their projects uh, in a way that maybe wouldn't happen if they were coming up now mm. and they were trying to make the same sort of films. Mm. Mm. Interesting. What kind of, what are the themes that the Coen brothers are preoccupied with or spend a good deal of time working around in their films uh i think a this is an idea that um tasha robinson wrote about for the dissolve i believe or, or possibly for um the verge i know she wrote it in kind of the last year or so so it's probably one of those two sites but she wrote about the idea of their films having a moral center and the moral center of theirs is essentially about people living up to a personal code and the idea being that characters in their film, if they live up to that code, they tend to be rewarded. If they go against that code, they can tend to get to be punished. And it's kind of, there's kind of a 
kind of an Old Testament kind of punishment going on in a lot of their films, more to do with whether or not people are kind of consistent to their own personal code of ethics and honour. Uh, and I think that that's something that kind of plays out in pretty much all of their works to one one extent or another. Mm. And plus also John Goodman playing an angry fat person. Yes, that is often a thing. Yelling people. There's, there's at least, that's a recurring theme in a lot of their works. Maybe not so much the last couple, but certainly all of their films in the 90s would have a kind of a close-up of a fat person screaming, mm-hmm. <laughs> which um, is one of the kind of those supercuts that uh, when YouTube started, someone put one of those together. And I found it immen- uh, immensely amusing because of how kind of weirdly true it was. Mm, the blustering titan, I believe that uh, theory was called. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, they do have a stock company of actors they keep coming to- back to, but they are always adding new people to the mix, which is always very nice. And it's always a nice range of people. They seem to know exactly what to do with them as well. Like uh, to, to cast uh, Channing Tatum as a closeted homosexual song and dance man. I mean, who <laughs> who, who saw Step Up 2 and thought, hmm, <laughs> I know what, I've got a role for this guy. Yeah, that is very much a, a unexpected delight. Mm. Um, that They do clearly have uh, a lot of affection for their actors i think and that is why they want to keep bringing them back and to try them in new things i certainly feel like that is a large part of the reason why they enjoy bringing john goodman back Mm. because they clearly like him but also uh, i think they they look at him and every role they give him they think what what can we do with him you know in the first time that works together with him in raising arizona he's a kind of uh dim-witted but sort of well-meaning criminal who breaks out of prison uh, and ends up kind of trying to steal a baby um but is generally kind of seen as kind of a a decentish sort of character and the next time they had him was barton fink where he is uh kind of one of their uh one of their embodiments of evil which is something also that kind of crops up in a bunch of their films uh, and then, like later on, you kind of have him playing uh, Walter in the Big Lebowski, where he kind of spits, splits the difference between the two. Mm. <laughs> in that he's kind of well-meaning, but he's also John Milius, so he's in, he's an absolute lunatic. So, um, yeah, I think they are they they like to bring actors back purely because they like to push them and have them try different things and maybe embody different aspects of the same character over and over again. Mm. like the thing about Channing Tatum that I said I mean I was being flippant but just thinking about it I remember reading an interview with Jeff Bridges where they asked him to come in for the Big Lebowski and they gave him the script and he was like I'm not sure this character is really right for me Uh, and they're like yeah but we think he's we wrote him for you on the basis (laughs) of your previous films and the Jeff Bridges line apparently was which of my previous films <laughs> did you see and think this would be a good idea? Um, but then it turns out, well, you know, that's pretty decent casting. Plus, uh, the other story about that is that they, uh, John Turturro's character, written for him, Jesus Quintana, they were like, we want a creepy bowler. And then they were like, yeah, we'll give him to John Turturro to play. And then apparently one of them was just like, should we just make him a pedophile? <laughs> and they were like, sure, <laughs> let's do it, just because it's John. And we think that'd be funny. My favourite of their running jokes, which they couldn't really do anymore because it reached their natural endpoint, was that 
Steve Buscemi would die in their films and in each subsequent film, less and less of him would remain. Mm-hmm. So he gets shot in the face in Miller's Crossing. He gets fed into a wood chipper, so there's only a foot left of him in Fargo. And in The Big Lebowski, he's cremated. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't been in a film of this for a while, has he, Buscemi? I think that was the last one. I think he hasn't been in since The Big Lebowski, unless I'm forgetting something. But I'm pretty sure that was his last collaboration with them. Mm. Oh, no, he's in um, he's in the short for Paris Jutem, but I think that's kind of outside of the canon and and in keeping he does get the shit beaten out of him in that short film so they they at least uh kept kept it consistent mm. yeah so the coen brothers versatile uh weird and amazing and uh, that kind of generally seems to sum up their body of work um they know what they're doing with the they know what they're doing don't they ed when it comes to making films yeah, um, I've just, I, I, I obviously only listed like five of their films that could be in my top five. What would be your favourite of theirs, do you think? My favourite? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say probably my favourite, which is not the same as being their best, is probably The Big Lebowski, because that's mm. the one of theirs that I've seen the most often. And it yeah. is the one that I have, I would just downright enjoy. If someone says, I'm going to put it on, I'll be ha- perfectly happy to watch that film uh, really any time. It constantly makes me laugh. Um, and like we've said about the Coen brothers, it is uh, a film that never really goes where you'd quite expect it to go. Um, mm. But I think their their best one for me uh, is either Fargo or No Country, I think, for me. Yeah, Fargo's one that I revisited in the last year because of the TV series, and that's one that kind of went up in my estimation. I'd always liked it, but it kind of felt, you know, it was the one that won an Oscar, and it was a big kind of critical success. That I, it, it kind of felt like a boring one to say, mm-hmm. but um, that one's that one's really good. Uh, the thing about the Big Lebowski that I think is great is it contains what for me is one of the best jokes ever written, which is uh, when uh, John Polito and um, <laughs> John John Polito and the dude meet for the first time and he goes, I'm a fellow brother Seamus. And he just goes, an Irish monk, <laughs> which is just fucking great. <laughs> it's just a really, a really great joke, which the first time I heard it, I thought that's, that's very clever. <laughs> mm. It's a very clever and very strange joke. Um, but also it, it embodies something I really like about their work in general, which is, it's obviously a riff on, big sleep in 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 the big way both in the title and the story and the idea of taking a classical hollywood story and treating it in a way that's you know both at the same time very reverent and pays very close attention to the details and also completely deconstructs it and says well what if philip marlowe was uh not philip yeah philip marlowe what if philip marlowe was a stoner who didn't really understand what was going on. <laughs> what what if he was basically, you know, if he had the same understanding of the story around him that the audience of The Big Sleep have of the story of The Big Sleep? Uh, that's one of the things that I love, even though it's their most accessible film. It gets to the heart of what they do a lot, which is take a genre that is very kind of recognisable and very classical and then say, how can we take take this and twist it in a way that's really interesting? Yeah, it's certainly Tara Reid's best film. I'll say that much. Well, don't sleep on alone in the dark. Oh yeah, she has sex on a desk in it. Well, with Christian Slater. 
Uh, almost certainly. Yeah, yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah, cool. That's the Coen Brothers, everyone. If you haven't heard of them, check them out. They've done some good films. Let's do recommends this week. What have you got, Ed? I'm going to recommend one of the dumbest things I've seen in a while, but something that gave me a lot of enjoyment in the week, which is something called The Wall Project, W-O-L, which stands for Walk of Life Project. It is a website where people, for reasons defying all understanding, have decided to take the final scenes of films, including The 400 Blows and 12 Monkeys, and replaced whatever the original score was with Walk of Life by <laughs> Dire Straits. <laughs> uh, they've done this for a bunch of films, and every time I watch it, it makes me laugh because that song is incredibly dumb, and <laughs> it it feels out of place for every single film it's applied for, but in a way that is really, really funny. The best version of which, of course, is Chinatown, <laughs> where uh, as the camera pans away and uh, Jake Gittes is <laughs> led away, the keyboard starts playing. It's like da 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 da, da, da. and it's it is it's incredibly dumb, but it is very very funny, and I'd really recommend people check it out. www.wallproject.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, and uh, people can lose themselves for uh, an hour or so as the joke fails to stop being funny. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, I'm going to recommend something. I was, as I said, I mean, I don't know if I, I said it before, but I was ill this week. I don't know, don't bang on about it. But yeah, in my kind of while I was convalescing, um, I watched a lot of films, um, and I watched The Martian, which uh, I thought well, that's a pretty good film. I was saying to Ed before the episode that like I really, really don't like Ridley Scott films anymore to the point where uh, even I'm starting to question his good ones that I do like. But anyway, that's not the point. The Martian is a good film. I'm not recommending The Martian, but while I was watching The Martian, I saw is that Benedict Wong. Uh, the actor, British actor, turned up playing a, a scientist. And I was like, yeah, that is Benedict Wong. And I thought, do you know what Benedict Wong's great in? 15 Stories High. Ah, uh, yes. Now, uh, for those of you who don't know what 15 Stories High is, it's one of the strangest sitcoms I've ever seen. <laughs> it's a sitcom set entirely, pretty much entirely in the confines of one tower block um, and in one room populated by Sean Locke, who also wrote the uh, the show with... Um, couple of the people, one of which was Mark Lamar. And yeah, he lives there. He's a kind of uh, depressive, but kind of uh, really weirdly paranoid and odd man who lives with an incredibly enthusiastic uh, young man played by Benedict Wong. And uh, the sitcom kind of documents their adventures, if you could call them that. Um, sample adventure. Uh, Vince, who is the character played by Sean Locke, goes to a Polish corner shop and buys some illegal energy drink called Blue Rat. He drinks it and starts to hallucinate uh, that there is a horse in the uh, the mirror opposite tower block across the way, and the entire episode is about whether or not he is losing his mind. <laughs> it is, is I've seen it described as uh, kind of if Christoph Kozlowski directed a sitcom. So if you, if you want to see that, then check out 15 Stories High. It's pretty rare. You don't really get to see it much. It used to be on Netflix. I think it's been taken off. DVD, I've got my I've got a DVD copy of it, and it's now kind of uh, been deleted, I think. So it's hard to get hold of, but if you can see it, please do. It is a very, very, very strange piece of work, but hugely rewarding. Um, so that's what I'm recommending this week. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. I... Uh, we'll promise that we'll be back next week with uh, something entirely different. We don't know what it's going to be yet. Uh, if you like the show, please 
Find us on the iTunes and Stitcher and all those other places and subscribe. Leave us a review. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. All those good things. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.